so fascinating. I don't know if you guys do too. I mean, we have these stories that we've heard, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and we hear about Daniel in the lion's den. But there's a lot of stuff in this book that is just fascinating. Things like how to be, have integrity when you're running a business or working in civil service, which is just thrilling. Um, but there are also these really fascinating stories like Daniel like outlived or worked through three separate kings in this book. And one of the kings that he was with had this really troubling dream and he got everybody together. And he's like, tell me what, he's like, I'm going to make you, you guys are supposed to be the people who know. You tell me the dream I had and then you tell me what it means. And of course, nobody could. They're all like, how do I know what's going on in your mind, oh king? And so he's like, fine, if you can't do it, you're worthless to me. Let's have you all put to death. And so the guys came to get Daniel and his buddies, and Daniel's like, why are we being put to death? And they said, well, this thing happened with the king. And he said, all right, let me talk to the king. And he said, king, give me a night to pray about it and talk with God because God can give this dream to us and this interpretation. And the king's like, whatever. But let him have the night. And then Daniel came back and told the king, here's what your dream was and here's what it means. And the king was like, wow, you're God. That was pretty amazing. And, and then there are other stories like um, Daniel was again with a different king. He was um, doing his own thing taking care of business, being a civil servant of exceptional caliber. And the second king was having a big party with all the other princes and their wives and their concubines. So that had to be a fun occasion. And there was a lot of alcohol involved. And so he sent for the cups and bowls that were used in the temple in Jerusalem. And they came and he's like, here, everybody, let's eat and drink out of these bowls. This is the spoil of, my, of the empire. They came from the temple in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden this hand came out of the air and wrote some words on the wall and the king starts freaking out because who wouldn't? Hand coming out of the air, words on the wall. So can anybody interpret this? Well again, there's Daniel. They're like, do you remember that guy who figured out the dream of the old king? So they went and got him and again he's like, I'm going to pray about this and, and the king's like, this is it. I will give you up to a third of the kingdom. You'll be in charge of a third of the kingdom. I'll give you jewels. I'll give you purple robes. Daniel's like, I don't want any of that. This is, and he sets this like hard truth out to the king. He's like, this is going to say that you have been defiling and going against and setting yourself up against God. And God is having none of it. And you are not going to have a long kingdom. It's not going to happen. And even hearing this, the king still honors Daniel with all the things he promised. The charge of a third of the kingdom, the jewels, and the purple robe. And even later that night, he was killed. So that was exciting. Um, but Daniel's got all these incredible stories where in the midst of being in exile, Daniel goes counterculture. He goes cross-current to what the world is doing. And it's fascinating to see. So I highly recommend you spend some time reading the book and get beyond the little stories that we've heard since we were like this big and look at what really is there. So I'm going to pray a minute and then we're going to get into how to be like Daniel. God, we just ask that you would be with us in this time that your words would be spoken, that your wisdom would be heard, that we could become a creative minority, that in this place where we are not the dominant power, we could speak truth to power with grace and wisdom, that we can be invested in our city, and that we could find a creative way forward. We just ask for your spirit to just reside here and be in this place today. Amen.
So I'm like Daniel. I don't think I interpret dreams. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but I'm a third culture kid. And what that means, that's a big fancy term in today's society for someone who grew up in two completely different cultures. And they don't really belong to either, but they don't really not belong to either, but kind of this third place that is an amalgam of both is where they live. And um, I came that way because my parents decided it would be really fun when we were kids to go move to England and work there and pastor church there. So when I was quite young, we moved from the United States and moved over to England. And then when I was older, we moved back from England to the United States. And then they moved back again and they're still there and I'm still here. And it makes for really good vacations. Also, I have a great British accent for a party trick, so you can ask Matt. Um, but when we were there, when we were there as kids, my brother was the youngest, and he was three years old, and he was having none of this British stuff. Like, it was anathema to him. He just couldn't handle it. And he was setting himself up as this lone bastion of Americanism in this sea of London. He would go to school, and they would tell him different words for things, and he would be like, nope, that's not it. I remember one day he came home, and he needed to take an extra pair of trousers to school, and he was really upset about that. And mom's like, it's okay, we can get you an extra pair of trousers. And he looks at my mom, and he said, them's not trousers, them's pants. Like, he was convinced that everybody was conspiring against him to become something he wasn't. But one day my brother came home from school, and he was so excited because he learned a new song. And here's my little three-year-old brother, all American. He looks like he's a linebacker, even though he's three. I promise you, if you saw a picture, you'd be like, <laughs> yeah. Um, and he sits there before my mom, and he's so excited. He's got this new song. And we were all, like, ready to listen. He's really excited. And so my brother, in this perfect choir voice, tenor, soprano, whatever, starts singing. And he goes... Baba, black sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir, yes, sir, free bags full. One for the master, one for the dame, and one for the little boy who lives down the lane. <laughs> and then he couldn't understand why we were all falling out laughing. <laughs> Because for him, he had nothing to compare that to. So for his whole life in England, he knew this was the right culture, and I'm in the wrong culture, and I can stand up against that wrong culture and butt my head against it. But the moment he was faced with something he didn't have a comparison to, he just accepted it without even thinking about it. He accepted it without questioning. And Daniel, even though he was someone who was transplanted from one culture to another, did not respond in this way. He didn't do what normal exiles do. He didn't set himself up against this culture and say, that is not what God has called me to be, so no. He didn't just go along with the culture just because that's what, it's, what it was supposed to do. He instead became this creative minority, or this creative minority. Um, he became somebody who spoke truth to power, who used creative wisdom, and engaged with the culture around him in a way that brought God glory. And this is what we need to be. We need to be like this creative majority. We can't stand in anger raging against the powerlessness of our position. 
We can't be separatists who put ourselves apart from, oh, we're not going to touch anything to do with that culture. We'll have our own music. We'll have our own movies. We'll have our own schools. We're not going to touch that. And we certainly can't capitulate. We can't just go along with it just because everybody else is. In fact, there's this verse in Romans 2, and I love it in the message. It says this. It says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking about it. We need to become a creative minority. People who prophetically engage with the world around us. People who inject our culture with kingdom-dictated value systems sustained by a relationship with God. We need to be like Daniel. And the first place we start is by being present in exile. So Daniel and his fellow exiles were picked up from, Babylon, from Jerusalem and taken to Babylon. They were the brightest of the bright. And when they went, the prophet Jeremiah gave this prophecy. And it starts out in Jeremiah 29. We all know Jeremiah 29, 11. It's one of those verses we throw around in church. But I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. We never go back and look at the beginning of this chapter. And so the beginning of this prophecy starts with Jeremiah speaking to the people who have been taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. And he says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all that I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and find husbands for your daughters so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Becoming a creative minority means that we can't just disengage from culture. Instead, it requires a choice not to separate ourselves out, but to actively engage in our world. There's a Mennonite theologian and professor named Dwayne Friesen, and he's written about this quite extensively. And one of the things that he says is that the church is God's body in the world. It is present to bring the well-being, the shalom of the city where it dwells. The advice of Jeremiah to pray to the Lord on behalf of the city in which it lives is not a call for passivity. It's to, to let God act while the church watches and waits. Genuine prayer requires becoming intoxicated, consumed by God, and becoming so filled with the Spirit of God that the church can become the agent of God's action in the world. To pray genuinely for God, for the, to God for the welfare of the city is to yearn with all one's heart for its well-being. To pray means to weep with God when the city chooses the way of death. It means to pronounce judgment, to yearn for, urge, and then act with the compassion of God that the city may choose the way of life. In unpacking this, this means our task is to represent Christ. Or as I like to put it, represent Christ. It means we are the body of Christ in our world. Where we go, it's Christ touching those places. And where we go means we need to be in relationship with Christ, seeking his path and his wisdom and what he wants for the city. It means building shalom. I like to look at shalom as harmony. 
It's a harmony that has many different levels. It's not just about like peace and harmony with God, which is a big focus of that, but it also means harmony and peace with one another. And it means harmony and peace within ourselves. And it means harmony and peace in the world in which we live. So when we're seeking the peace of the city, the shalom of the city, we're seeking right relationships, healthy relationships, healthy environments, making the city better physically, emotionally, interpersonally, and in all these different levels. It doesn't mean that we look different necessarily, but it means we live with different priorities. I grew up in the Mennonite church. And when I say Mennonite, a lot of you who have any idea about Mennonite and Amish have a view, an image in your mind already of the way somebody dresses. And this is not what it means to be living different or being a creative minority. It does not mean that you can't do that, but that's not the primary goal. The primary goal is to have a different set of priorities than the culture around you, not to actually look different and act like you're separate and set apart. And when we're doing this, we have to be actively seeking and not being passive. It's not enough to just go, okay, I'm just gonna pray for my city. Okay, I'm done, back about my life. Prayer is important and it's active and engaged and it means that we are connecting with the heart of God and then not just letting it stay there, but moving forward into making a difference wherever our foot lays. So how do we do this? How do we become a creative minority in this city in this time? First thing we have to do is kind of counterculture. It's intentional disengagement. Now, I just said something earlier about how we shouldn't be separate. We shouldn't separate ourselves out and be in this cultural enclave that is Christian, which refuses to engage with the world. But there's something very important about stepping back and being able to look critically at the culture around us. Dwayne Friesen also says that. He says intentional disengagement from the culture is the necessary precondition for meaningful engagement in that same culture. This is very true. I'm a big fan, being a third culture kid, of people living in different cultures. You learn something about yourself and about the assumptions you make when you live in a completely different way. When you walk back in the door to the United States after having lived in another country, even for a short period of time, suddenly you see things with new eyes. Like, why do I have to wear white on my wedding day? Or, why do we do dinner this way? Or, is this really the best way to educate our kids? Or it could also be, should we only have a two-party system? Or maybe it should be, is this the best way to live in community? We begin to question the things that we see and take for granted every day because we've seen a different perspective, a new, seen things with new eyes. We can find this by the way we follow Jesus as well. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about us learning from him, walking alongside him, taking our yoke upon him, and learning his ways. Again, in one of the different translations, it talks about learning his unforced rhythms of grace. And there's something so beautiful about that. Spending time learning Jesus' ways, spending time in his presence, separates us from the dominant culture and teaches us to look at things with new eyes. As we change and as we become more like Christ, 
We no longer fit into our culture without even thinking about it. Intentional disengagement also happens by us changing our focus. Wise men once said to me, where you focus, where your focus is, that's where your character is going to come from. And I had to think about this a long time. When we set ourselves up against something as a principle, our eyes are constantly on that thing we're against, and that's where we take our dominant culture cues from. Let me give you an example of this. Let's say, for instance, you have an unhealthy relationship with food. Um, and you think to yourself, I really need to change this. I need to eat more healthily. I need to watch how many calories I take in. I need to be really intentional about how I eat. Then you start reading all the diet manuals. You start reading on the South Beach diet and the Atkins diet and the this diet and the that diet and the juice cleanse and the uh, I need to... Um, purge my body of certain things and you think, okay, I need to have only this much calories in and you begin to really plan and you begin to really focus. And again, your focus is still on food. It's on what you can have and what you can't have. And what was an unhealthy relationship has remained an unhealthy relationship because you're still consumed with the same thing still consumed with the same thoughts. Because where your eyes are, that's where your character comes from. This doesn't mean you can't be wise and do research and all these kinds of things. I'm all for that. Just making a point here that where your eyes are, that's where you get your character from. It's where you get your cues from. When we focus on Christ and we focus on Christ's kingdom, instead of setting ourselves up as anti the culture, we set ourselves up as being for the kingdom. And instead of being known by what we're against, we can step out of the culture and not fit in just without thinking about it. But disengaging isn't all we should do. Disengaging is the start. It's where we begin to look, observe, and understand. The most important thing about being a creative minority is how we then re-engage with our culture. We need to re-engage as philosophers, as citizens, and as artists. When we do this, it enables us to connect with our culture in a healthy and inspiring way where we can interject the kingdom values that come from that relationship with God into our world. So what does it mean to be a philosopher? Philosophers are people who seek wisdom and they share wisdom creatively. They shake up our worldview and they cause us to see things in a different way. Think about Plato and the cave. He talked about everything we see is a poor reflection of what is perfect somewhere else. It made us so think beyond our small little worlds. Or think of Aristotle and his Nicomachean ethics, where he told his son, you need to live in an ethical way that's not at the expense of someone else. You need to live with fortitude and justice and prudence and temperance in all that you do. Or think about Descartes, who was wrestling with, do I exist or am I just a figment of somebody else's imagination? And he'd come to the place like, I have 
independent and interesting thoughts. And if I can do that, then I'm not somebody's imagination. I exist. I am an entity. Changes the way we have the world. Or one of my favorite philosophers, the author Terry Pratchett, who created a completely ridiculous worldview and set a whole bunch of stories in there where then you can explore the absurdities that we accept as truth in our culture and see them for how they really are. If you ever want to read a book by him, come talk to me. I will tell you which ones to start with. They're very funny, also very dry, also very British. Daniel did this. Daniel was a philosopher in his society. Let's think about our first encounter with him. He challenges the prevailing worldview about food, of all things. He shares wisdom and challenges the official in charge to see things differently. He could have been a separatist. He could have said, my God only lets me eat kosher things, therefore I will not be eating any of that and you can't make me. Think about how good that would have gone over. He also could have just gone with it and been like, okay, I guess I'm in, I guess I'm in exile, so psh, whatever. But instead, what he did was seek the Lord. And then he came to the official and he said, how about we try a little experiment? He challenged the worldview with wisdom and creativity. And what ended up happening was everybody ended up doing things Daniel's way because of the wisdom behind it. And we see this all throughout the book of Daniel. The moments when he went to seek wisdom from God and then God gives it to him and all kinds of knowledge. And it even says that he blessed and enhanced the way he was able to do his everyday job and do it well. What would this look like in this city if we were philosophers? If we were people who sought the wisdom of God and then brought it created, creatively to bear in our jobs, on Capitol Hill, in the State Department, in media and in NGOs, we were the ones who were speaking and challenging us to do something different. What would it look like if we did this, brought this wisdom to bear in the face of power and consumerism, things that drive our world? And there's something to remember in this. Wisdom alone isn't enough. The Apostle Paul says this at one point in time. He says, you know, I could speak with the tongue of men, men and angels. I could fathom all mysteries. I could understand all things. But if I don't have love, I am like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just noise. And this is true. Like there's something about having character that has to go hand in hand with wisdom. When we read in Daniel 6 about Daniel's life, we find that he is like number three in the, like one of three in the land over everybody else. He's incredibly high in the ranks and his co-workers are incredibly jealous of this and they want to find a way to take him down. So they start going over his work, looking for some way, something that he's done wrong that they can use. But what they find is his character is impeccable. He did his work well, he did it diligently, he was trustworthy and completely incorruptible. We can't be the wisdom of God without having the character of God. We have to be like Daniel. We can't come into our jobs and say, I know what we should do here. Here's a creative way of looking at it. Doesn't matter how right that is. If people don't trust us, 
if they don't see what we're doing is above reproach, nobody's going to buy it. One of the things that I love about living in community is that we can do this with one another. We can live together and see each other's strengths and see each other's flaws. And we can love each other enough to say, I love you, but you got to work on the gossip thing. And we can trust that people can say that back to us. I love you, but Becky, dude, that's a problem. And it is so important that we do that with one another. That we exist in a place where we call each other to a higher standard and extend to one another the same grace that we live in every day. One of my favorite uh, musicians, because this is showing my age, but is Rich Mullins from back in the day. And he has this song, has a line in it that I really love. It says, the stuff of earth competes with the allegiance that I, own, I owe only to the giver of all good things. And as he goes on, he says, I want to stand on the promise that you will pull me through. But if I can't, I want to fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And we have to live in that place as a creative minority where we stand on the promise of God knowing that the grace of God exists and that we extend that to one another in community. So that was my little caveat to the wisdom thing. So what does it mean to be a citizen? That's the other thing I said we needed to be. We need to be citizens in this city. Citizens choose to belong where they are. It has absolutely nothing to do with nationality. Citizens work to shape the common good for the world around them. We become citizens in this city when we take ownership and responsibility for seeking good in our community. We need to become people who are faithfully turned towards God and fully rooted in our community for however long we're here. And Daniel was like this. He was moved off to a new land and he was given a new name. And he accepted that name and went by that name and that was fine. And in that process, he then began to be faithful in everything that was set in front of him. And he actively worked to better the province he worked in. He faithfully spent time in prayer several times a day and oriented himself towards God. He did that, being faced God, rooted here. To be a citizen in the city, we have to know the problems and listen to the concerns of the city. These don't just mean the problems that affect us. These mean the problems that affect our neighbors and the people in our community. We also have to build intentional community wherever we are. A woman I used to mentor, she and her husband moved to Muncie, Indiana, and they started attending a church that had a specific vision for a neighborhood. It was one of the most lower class neighborhoods in the city, and the people in the church began buying homes in the neighborhood, which at first made the like, you know, little hairs on the back of my neck stand up because I'm like, ah, gentrification. But instead what they did was deliberately decided to be community to the people in their community. They created safe spaces in their homes for neighborhood children to come play. They invited their neighbors over for food, connected with them one-on-one -on -one as equals, not as somebody bringing so much better news than you have right here. They listened to the concerns that their neighborhood had. They spoke with them and on behalf of them at city council meetings. They began to invest in building life where they went. How do we do that? 
Do we participate in events in our community? Do we open up our homes to people around us? Are we invested in the children, in the schools? Are we? Or are we invested in only the things that matter to us? One of my friends got married um, last year here in the city, and when they did their first, first dance as husband and wife, they came out to this song that was all about investing in their community. It was all, all about having the love of God change us so that we could be instruments of peace where there was hatred they could sow love. And they need so invested in their community. And I saw them dancing eye to eye, the love just sizzling as it does at the first dance of a wedding. And they were singing this song to one another. And it was so right because for both of them, investing in their community was in their DNA. And it became a part of the DNA of their relationship. Their relationship with God was calling them to invest around them. I'm using that word a lot, invest, but it's important. Because if we're not rooted here, if we're not thinking, what am I doing while I'm here rather than what is coming ahead? Where's my next promotion? What am I going to do in the future? If we're not investing here, what are we here for? I find that I'm really good at grumbling. I don't know about you guys. But I'm really good at going, good Lord, look at this pothole. My big one is snow. Like I think this city looks at snow every year and goes, what is this white stuff and what are we supposed to do with it? Someone who comes from a lot of snow looks at that and rolls their eyes. Quite. This is not speaking on behalf of your community. How can we instead be speaking well and speaking life and speaking for those who have no voice? We can't do that without listening, without being actively engaged. I read this article this week um, from a British bishop. I, I'm noticing that there's a huge British string in this whole sermon. Um, I do apologize. Um, but there is this bishop um, in Britain from the, from the um, Church of England. And he just spoke this last week at a council of bishops. And he was really deliciously scathing. Um, I, I love deliciously scathing everything. Um, it's one of my happy places. But... <clears throat> He started calling out the church for the way they were planting churches. And he was saying, it's amazing how many people God is calling to plant churches in middle class and upper class neighborhoods. And how few people God is calling to plant churches in poor neighborhoods. Just stunning. He said this, we need you in those areas where trendy coffee shops and artisanal bakeries are hard to find. Which um, I think resembles me a little too much sometimes. He went on to talk about how the mission approach of the church has been almost entirely focused on the needs and the aspirations of the wealthy. And then rather than speaking good news to the poor, we become complicit in abandoning the poor. We need to watch that where we're planted. Are we investing in the good of the whole city or just in the parts of the city that make us happy or make us feel secure? Good citizens seek to see their world thrive, not just the places where they live. And we also need to be artists. Artists communicate on a completely different level. They imagine a possibility and then they work to realize it. They find new ways to represent ideas and they enable us to engage in this. 
they shift our perspective and their, their um, creativity unleashes something fierce and beautiful and new. They bring beauty and life wherever they go. They stand cross-current to the status quo and they show truth in a different way. I'm a part of something here in D.C. that is like such a D.C. thing. It is an all-women's social justice acapella group. <laughs> it is, right? Um, we're really good, I'm, I'm not going to lie. But <clears throat> we sing about social justice issues and we lend our voice to social justice causes all around the city. Um, and one of the songs we sing is a song based on the last words of Eric Garner. And every time we sing this song, like, like, it's like a gut punch. And I look out over the audience when we sing it, and it's a gut punch to them too. In the middle of a world where we have compassion fatigue, because we hear stories every day, one more place of injustice. And it's so easy just to push that aside because we get tired of it. We get weary from it. The artist comes and is able to get that home in a different way. And while I was preparing for our last concert where we were going to sing this song, I came across a poem that does just this. It speaks truth in a way that cuts through everything I know and hits me upside the head. So I'm going to share it with you, and my apologies up front because I do not have a very good sense of how to read poetry. But I want you to listen and hear these 14 lines, again talking about Eric Garner, bring a different perspective. A small needful fact is that Eric Garner worked for some time for the Parks and Rec Horticultural Department, which means perhaps in all likelihood he put gently into the earth some plants which most likely some of them in all likelihood continue to grow. Continue to do what such plants do, like house and feed small and necessary creatures, like being pleasant to touch and smell, like converting sunlight into food, making it easier for us to breathe. Artists are courageous. They work to make a vision a reality and make it touch us in a way that we can't even explain. They unleash metaphors and songs and images and beauty. They're places to rally around, things to bring us together, things that call us to hope, things that point out injustice. And they inspire a different future and bring us face to face with who we really are. We need to be artists. We need to be creatively engaged in our culture in such a way that we upend it and make it a different perspective. Many of us believe, though, that we're not creative. But God is fundamentally creative. And his DNA is in all of us. If we look at Daniel, we see this in action. 
Time after time, Daniel went to God and he came back. He came back with the poetry of worship. He came back with the metaphors to understand the dreams of kings, the courage to speak the truth to power, and the visions to understand the future. We need to be creative artists in our community like Daniel in order to inject our culture with the values in the life of Christ. So how do we thrive in exile? How are we a creative minority that follows Daniel into a place where the dominant culture wants to shape us into its image? Let's go back to that verse in Romans 12. I'm going to read the whole passage to you from the message. It starts out. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking about it. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and be quick to respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Daniel lived this. He took his everyday life and placed it before God. He sought God's wisdom and he sought God's direction and sought the well-being of his city. And he became known for his wisdom and integrity. He and his city thrived. And we can thrive in exile too. Not by forming our own enclave, but instead like Daniel, being this creative minority of philosophers and citizens and artists deeply rooted in our city, present in our culture, and faithfully turned towards God. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are at the center of all we do. Thank you that we can keep our eyes on you. We pray that you will wake in us a creative desire to be in this city and for this city. Awaken in us the ability to hear your wisdom and speak the truth. Grow in us your maturity and integrity. Let us be citizens who hear our community and invest in it. And let this place be infected with your culture your kingdom. Come here as it is in heaven.